Good morning, everyone, and happy Father's Day to all of you, all of you dads. Um, last week, I said that it was the last week of Reality Remastered, the series that we've been in the last few weeks, and I unintentionally lied. Um, I should have said, if the Lord wills, because here we are again. Uh, today, I want to continue in what feels like a series in a series. Uh, for the last three weeks, we've been in a study really on justice. Uh, two weeks ago, I gave a teaching on social justice and the way of Jesus. And last week, I gave a teaching on how justice needs allies from Exodus. Today, I want to look at Micah 6.8, one of the most extravagant, beautiful, and powerful texts in all of the Bible called the most um, significant text in the Old Testament. And I also want to look at that very popular protest chant, no justice, no peace. And my hope today is to show you how, according to Micah and many Old Testament prophets, that phrase, no justice, no peace, is true in two senses. One, that unless there's justice in the land, there is no true peace. And secondly, and probably the sense which rings the most true through all of the pro most of the prophets in the Old Testament, is that if there is no justice work being done through the life of God's people, well then, they have, we have no real peace with God. No justice, no peace. Let me read Micah 6, 1 through 8, and then I'll pray. Also, you should open your Bible there because I'm going to be in and out of this text a lot today. Verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what I have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. This is God speaking through, through Micah. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, the king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, uh, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Now this is Israel answering. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn as my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, again, this is Micah now speaking. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit under the scriptures, may you form us, shape us, change us, mold us. What we are not, may you make us. What we have not, may you give us. Lord, I, I pray that there it would be some sort of powerful formation that happens in our minds and in our hearts today as we're shaped around your heart, God. Please do that in our congregation for the glory of Christ and the beauty of your gospel. 
Would you anoint me? I need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. After a quick internet search on the history of the popular protest phrase, no justice, no peace, you'll see that the phrase started somewhere in the mid or late 80s following the murder of Michael Griffith in Queens, New York. But there is debate on whether the phrase is conjunctive or conditional. Whether the phrase should read conjunctively, that is, without justice there is no peace, and without peace there is no justice. Meaning you need both to exist for any of them to be possible. Martin Luther King said something very similar where he said, I I might say that I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. Now, is the phrase, you know, in that sense, it's, it's conjunctive, they're connected together, or is the phrase conditional, meaning uh, we, you're supposed to read it as an if-then statement, meaning if there is no justice, then the protesters won't let there be peace, which means the protests that are happening kind of all over our world right now see it as their job to disrupt the false peace in our society because there is no justice, which explains a lot of the protesting. Not the looting, but the protests. Now, which is it? Where is this phrase? What does the scriptures have to say about this phrase? Now, you might be finding it interesting how the Bible frames this idea of justice and peace, especially in the world of the prophets. Because unless there's justice, there's no peace. That's true. They need one another. But maybe more alarming to us as we read the Old Testament is what the prophets do is when there is no justice in the land, they are actually sent by God to disrupt false peace with protest and a call to repent. This is what we find in Micah and what we find Micah doing here in chapter 6 of his prophecy. See, Micah is a prophet to Israel. The uh, prophets in Israel were kind of like modern-day filmmakers or musicians or even comedians who used their craft to capture the insanity and the emotion of a particular historical moment in our society and call people to wake up. Think Dave Chappelle, modern prophet with a potty mouth, right? Someone who critiques our society in a way that makes us react. Now, Old Testament prophets were there to reveal God's inner life. That's the difference between probably modern name prophets and Old Testament prophets. Uh, prophets in the Old Testament would actually would disclose uh, God's divine pathos, which stirring him up to act emotionally. So when the prophets were, are, are angry, it's because God is angry. When the prophets are sad, it's because God is sad. When the prophets are hopeful, it's because God is hopeful. Abraham Heschel has said the main task of prophetic thinking is to bring the world into divine focus. Prophetic thinking brings God's thoughts and emotions to bear on the world, specifically, in this case, Israel. What does God think about what's going on in our world right now? What does God feel about what's going on in the world? That is specifically what the prophets are answering. Now, Micah prophesied against Israel. Now, at the time Micah was prophesying, Israel was experiencing extreme wealth and economic prosperity in that country at that time. But at the same time of extreme wealth and prosperity, there was intense moral corruption happening, which was uh, coming from the, the top down, 
from her kings and her prophets and even her priests. There was extreme disparity between rich and poor, meaning there was wealth but also extreme poverty. And this was exacerbated by injustices on the part of the elite and the ruling class of that time. Now, during this time, the nation looked very religious. The people gave a lot of money to the temple. They offered lavish gifts. But while all this is happening, Israel at this time was also in trouble. There was a, a threat looming, a national threat that would make all the boom times of prosperity go away in a moment. Now, this threat was a powerful kingdom called Assyria. They had the might and the brawn to level Israel immediately. Now, the strange thing is that God was actually using prophets like Micah and Isaiah and Hosea to tell Israel that if they didn't repent, he would actually use Assyria to judge and discipline them. And so the powerful in, the, in that land at that time didn't want to lose it all. So like we've all done from time to time, when there's a potential threat to our lives or our livelihood, we turn to a higher power. We turn to God. We say, God, get me out of this. What do I have to do? It's called a prayer of desperation. We've all prayed these prayers. And that's the sentiment happening in Micah chapter six. Look at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What do I have to do? This is a prayer of desperation. Micah, what do we have to do to get right with God here? Now, this whole scene that's leading up to the famous verse eight is actually a courtroom scene. Like a trial is going on here. Look at verse one. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. In this trial scene, the Lord is the plaintiff who is making a case against Israel for injustice. Micah is the plaintiff's messenger. The defendants are Israel. And the witnesses, get this, the witnesses are the mountains. How cool is that? Which is, I think, kind of cool because the, the foundations of the earth earth have seen and witnessed God creating humanity, calling people Israel, and the, the nature of their relationship together. The mountains have witnessed all of this. Now, God's argument that he, 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 he like gives to Israel, his argument, his defense is this. It goes something like this. Verse three to five, look at your Bibles. How have I made this relationship hard for you? This is what God's saying. Answer me, how, how is this how is this hard for you? I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Remember that? When you were slaved and you were being crushed in a foreign land, I brought you out. Remember, I redeemed you and I led you with really good leaders and I gave you leaders like Moses and Miriam. Remember, I led you that way and I protected you when people wanted to curse you. I, I turned their curses into blessings for you. I blessed you and I brought you justice and I brought you mercy. How is this hard? Look what I've done for you. This is what God is saying to them. Now in verse five, these are all called righteous acts of the Lord meaning it was right for God to act in this way because of his steadfast love towards his people. Now in verse six and seven is where Israel replies to the Lord. But to truly appreciate what's happening here, we need one more layer of context. And this context is covenant. Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. A covenant is the binding together of your will and your affections. There's a legal element of duty, but also a commitment to love each other. This is what Israel was, was in with God. They were bound to God both in duty and love. 
So there's duty involved, but there's also love that's motivating all of this. God was in covenant with Israel. And that covenant happened at the base of Mount Sinai, which is why God calls the the mountains to witness, right? Next is 24. When Israel was given the terms of the covenant in in, in Exodus 24, um, Israel said, I do. They said, I do, to all the vows. The closest thing that we have to covenant today is, is marriage. It's literally a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. There's a huge difference. There is marital language actually used by the prophets in the Jewish Bible when it talks about Israel's relationship with God. In the New Testament, we get the same language, that the church is the bride of Christ, and there's marital language used between the church's relationship with God. See Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21. Now, how does this context that I'm trying to unpack here change how we are to see Micah? or change in, in effect what, what, what we're looking at in our text this morning. How does this deeper layer of context add meaning and richness to Micah chapter six? Well, this courtroom scene is not just some general courtroom. It's like divorce court. That's what's happening here. And the people of God were saying, what do, I, what do we have to do to make this right? God, what do we have to do to make this relationship right between you and us? And they say this almost very cold hearted. We're gonna capture that in verse six and seven. We'll see that in a second. And God was saying, what did I do to you? How have I burdened you? I've been so good to you. I've held up all of my wedding vows. And the people were like, so what do you want? What do you want? You want half the house? You want the whole house? You want the estate? You want the children? What do you want? This is, I mean, this does read like divorce court. Now, that's the scene and the context now let's look at verse eight. That's like, kinda un- that's like setting everything up for our, where I wanna get today in verse eight. Look at verse eight. Remember the context. What do we do, God? What do you want from us? Verse eight, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Now at the center of this question is this. What does God like? What does God want from us? What is that thing that when I do it or we do it, God is like, oh, that's good. That's really good. I love that. What is the thing that when the church or the people of God do that thing, God is like, yes, amen, I love that. Or said differently, what does God want from us? What does God desire of us? I know we don't typically frame the question that way. Usually the question is framed, what does God do for me? Or what does God give to me? And the answer to that question, what does God want from us? In Israel's mind, and what many of us are convinced of today on social media in our Christian circles, which is actually embedded in our quote, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue, or just believe the gospel, or we should just be praying a lot more right now. What's embedded in a lot of our spirituality, I wanna be kind here, but I also want you to listen. What's embedded in a lot of our spirituality is this lie that what God really wants from us is our spiritual practices, our spirituality. What God is most happy about is our prayer life, and our Bible studies, and our fellowship groups, and our worship, and our singing, and our giving to the church. That's the stuff that makes God the most happy. 
we subconsciously or maybe even consciously think that is what God wants. See, this is no different than what Israel thought, by the way. Look at verse 6 and 7 in Micah. What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? This all has to do with the sacrificial system. Like, what does God want? Does he want a ton of sacrifice? Does he want olive oil poured out on the altar? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? This is where it gets a little, like, risky. This is, like, almost to where um, Israel is kind of pushing the limits. What do you want from us? What do you want, God? Do you want all the rams? Do Do you want our kids? Do you want us to kill our kids for you? What do you want from us? I mean, this might sound crazy. I'm going to say this, but it might sound crazy. But what God wants when there's injustice in the land is not more prayer, not more Bible studies, not more worship songs. I know this sounds ludicrous. I know he doesn't want more of that. You know what God wants? Justice. That's what he wants. This is basically the refrain over and over again among the prophets. God is saying, I don't want your religious rituals. Now, but here's the deal. Don't knock this as being some Old Testament archaic religious ritual. Like, oh, well, of course God doesn't want that. That that sacrificial system's over in Jesus. Actually, these were spiritual practices given to, to the people of God by God to draw them near him and be shaped by him. The problem wasn't the practices. The problem was the numbing religious effect the practices had on social justice. I'll say that again. The problem wasn't the practices. The problem was that the practices numbed them to the the real work of social justice. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs comments on this. He says, the common denominator of the prophetic critique of sacrifices is not opposition to them as such, but rather an insistence that that acts directed to God must never dull our sense of duty to mankind. See, prayer is important. I mean, we pray a lot as a church. Fasting and Bible study and evangelism, all these things are important, but these things, listen, these things have a way. They have a way of dulling our sense of duty to hit the streets in the work of justice because prayer and worship make us feel good. They make us feel good and we think that is enough. All we have to do is pray more. All we have to do is talk about the Bible more. All we have to do is do Bible studies more and that will solve everything. That is not true. Amos chapter five, another Old Testament prophet. This is what God says through the prophet Amos to Israel. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with your noise, the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness 
like a never failing stream. Remember, prophets reveal God's heart, his inner life, how he feels about something. When there's injustice in the land and the church and in our lives, when there's injustice in the church, in the land and in our lives, and we resort to more prayer and more singing, God gets pissed. Pardon my language or don't, I don't, I don't know. Like he just gets furious. See, the question that Micah is asking is what does God want? What does God require? What does God, when he sees his people doing that thing, says, oh my gosh, that's so good. Do that again. I love that. What is it? He has shown you what is good. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let me come at this another way. Isaiah 58, chapter 2. Again, a prophet speaking to God's people. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Now listen to this. All of this stuff we would say is so good. Listen, look what's in there. Daily worship, eager to learn the scriptures, meaning to know God's ways, they're moral people. They're doing the commandments. They pray to make the right decisions and they want intimacy with God. They want God to come near them. They want intimacy with God. If this was our church, I could probably retire, the most fulfilled pastor ever. Like, oh my gosh, this is it. If our children grew up this way, every parent would think, nailed it. I nailed it as a parent. But God goes on to say, even though all this stuff is, is happening or you think it's happening, you are actually rebellious. Why? Why, why are they, why would God say, you do all this stuff, but you're, but why? Because he says, you neglect the oppressed, the hungry, and the poor. In verse six, and this is, you know, this is what you should actually be doing, or this is what all the spiritual practices should actually lead to that you're actually doing. Look what it says. This is what I want you doing. Loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. Set the oppressed free. Share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. See the naked and clothe them. Which means, church, if you don't care about the poor, if you don't see the plight of the oppressed, if you don't see the sheer pain and the historic injustice of race in our country, you may say you have a real robust relationship with God, but you don't. I don't. We don't. If we say that and we say, but I pray a lot and I do this a lot, but we ignore the oppressed, we ignore the plight of the poor. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor, all of this is in the Old Testament. And we know in the New Testament, we're not saved by works. We're saved by Jesus, remember? Yes, I do remember. And I remember James chapter two. What is it? What good is it, my brothers and sisters? This New Testament. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister, and listen, listen to, this is literally direct, like Old Testament parallel. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, 
peace to you, shalom, keep warm, be well, be fed, but does nothing about the situation that they're in, their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. That's the New Testament prophetic literature that's the same tradition as the Old Testament. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, no compassion on them, no mercy on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Let's not just say we love people or just pray for people. Let's do something. See, doing justice and caring for the poor is not for justice warriors. It's not for the people who have the spiritual gift of justice because that's not a thing. It's the outworking of real faith in Jesus. Justice work is the outworking of real faith in Jesus. Pastor Timothy Keller says, if you have a living faith and a real relationship with God, then a heart and a life dedicated to social justice is the inevitable sign of that real faith. Micah 6, 8, justice, mercy, and humility. This is what God desires for his people. That you would do, act justly or do justice, that you would love mercy, and that you would walk humbly with your God. And they all go together. Justice is what we do. Justice has both a equal treatment for all component rooted in the Imago Dei, that we should treat everyone equally. That's justice work, but Biblical justice also has like a, uh, a special concern component, meaning um, uh, as people who have power and wealth, according to biblical justice, people who have power and wealth must distribute, leverage their power and money and wealth to those who don't have it. That's biblical justice. So it's both Imago Dei, equal, and showing special concern to the plight of the oppressed. Mercy... That's do justice. Love mercy is how we do justice. Mercy is like the attitude of justice. That, that word is kindness or compass, compassion. It's not compulsory or obligatory. It's, it's the part of loving our neighbor as ourself. Like love drives it. It's, 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 it's this uh, uh, way that our, our, like our attitude is like, I love this person. I have pity, compassion, um, grace, mercy for this person. And that should drive our, like our attitude towards justice. But there's also a, a walking humbly that is walking with character and wisdom, the wisdom and the character of God himself. Now, as we, as we end here, I want to give two warnings aimed at two different kinds of people in our church in light of our cultural moment. Two things. The first is this. If you were to look at our nation's history as it pertains to racism and how the sin of racism has touched every single one of us who grew up in America, no matter where you grew up, we've been socialized toward it. It has gotten into our systems and into our consciousness, even though laws have changed. It hasn't gone away. And if you hear the pain of the, major, the majority of our black brothers and sisters, their pain, for you, not 
to be moved to take up the cause of the oppressed right now, for you not to use your power and your influence and distribute your power to those who need it, which is an aspect of biblical justice. You may say that you have a vital relationship with God, but this just might be the test of that, the test to see if your faith is real. In the words of Micah, do justice. Do justice. And you can't pick and choose your justice. You can't say, well, I'm not getting involved in the justice of race right now. That's not my brand of justice. My brand is kind of like towards the unborn. You, you don't get to do that. Followers of Jesus do justice, love neighbor in all forms. When injustice springs up, especially in our national consciousness, when it springs up, we move towards it to do justice. We do it. We don't get to pick and choose. Okay, a second warning. For those in our church who are protesting and posting and trying to convince all your friends and family that this, that this is the issue of our day, our cultural moment right now, and that we need to get behind Black Lives Matter, for, that, for those in our church that are doing that, the last part of this verse, walk humbly with your God, is for you. See, most commentators interpret that verse to mean walk in wisdom. Walk carefully or circumspectly with your God. Which means what is needed right now more than ever for those who feel the sense of justice welling up within them, the need for you right now is to walk in wisdom. Wisdom to know if other ideologies are creeping into your worldview right now. See, in San Francisco, it's easy to see how people over there, wherever over there is, enmesh their Christianity and their right-wing politics. Oh my gosh, we see it so clearly in San Francisco, right? We just, oh, you've enmeshed your, your, your Christianity with right-wing politics. It's so easy to see that. But can you see how your sense of biblical justice gets enmeshed with progressive left ideology? This is where wisdom is needed. This is where the church has to, we have to, especially those of us who live in San Francisco and, and a majority of us are like, let, I just really want people to see that this is the issue and we need to stand for our brothers and sisters who are still, this, this oppression's in the water. Like we need to do something. We have to be wise. We have to be humble. We have to ask ourselves, what sort of ideologies do we have to continue to watch out for to make sure that we are doing biblical justice that we're walking in wisdom with God, that, we're, that we take up the cause of the oppressed in a way that doesn't add to more oppression, that does, just doesn't shift power dynamics, but we actually subvert it, subvert power with the gospel. We need to be asking ourselves these hard questions. And so as maybe as you're meeting with people, maybe these are the questions that those of us in our church that are leading in this need to be asking ourselves. These are most of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. How can we be wise right now? How can we be humble right now? We also need wisdom to know when to engage and when to disengage and rest because all justice work is a marathon, not a sprint. There's a scene in the movie Just Mercy 
Um, it's free everywhere. You can watch it, and you should. It's like it's so important. It's free everywhere. Okay. Um, there's a scene in this in the movie Just Mercy. This is a true story of the life of Brian Stevenson, where Jamie Foxx's character says to a young Brian Stevenson, played by Michael B. Jordan where he says, you thought you were going to come up in this prison that he was in with your Harvard degree and make everything right overnight. And what Brian had to learn really early on in his justice work was that this work is a long road. We need wisdom to see that and prepare ourselves for the long road that involves self-sacrifice, things that will cost us and not just like social media retweets, but like real involvement in these things and not just these things, but press ourselves everywhere that there is injustice. This is the work of the church. But I want to end where we began with a chant, no justice, no peace. Is it conjunctive or conditional? Well, the answer is both. According to the prophets like Micah, It's prophetic work to disrupt the false peace of those at the top who are prosperous and in power because they lack justice. It's prophetic work to disrupt false peace. No justice, then you don't get false peace. We have to disrupt that. That's the work of Micah. That's the work of Amos. That's the work of Isaiah. But that alone won't do because that's often the work of guilt. It's often the work of shame. It's also often the work of blame. This is what we're doing on social media, by the way, right? Guilt and shame and blame, like you, 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 you. There's a need to point out guilt and blame, but that won't change the heart, nor will that really change the world. We need reconciliation. We need reconciliation with God. That's true peace that that we need. And we need reconciliation with each other. That's true justice. See, that's the conjunctive. We need both of them. We need the kind of justice and peace where we have peace with God through Jesus Christ and then we have peace with one another through Jesus Christ and then there's true justice happening horizontally. That's the work of the gospel. And that's the work of the gospel through us, in us and then through us. So the call, I think, to us this morning is the same call that Micah issued to Israel. Back to covenant faithfulness with God. That we have been inter- brought into this new covenant with, through Jesus' blood. Gentiles, Jews, we're all brought into this new covenant. And as a, as a byproduct of this new covenant, we live at peace with God and now we're to be salt and light in the earth. Now you and I are supposed to love God and love neighbor. Now we're supposed to take on the same attitude as Jesus had in Philippians, where we lay our lives down for the service of others. We need to go back to covenant faithfulness, which is two-dimensional. It isn't just songs. It isn't just Bible studies. It isn't just like having peace with God. It's actually working out that peace and being, being people who reconcile other people to God and then work towards reconciliation between people groups. That's, that's the call, I think, that Micah issues. And that would be the call that you and I, the church, we must step into ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, may it be, God. I know that as it pertains to justice work, we have a lot of things to learn and a lot of work to do. And it really is easy, God. It's so easy and fun to pray and sing songs and learn 
Greek words in the, in, the, in the Bible. I love it as much, if not more than anyone here. I just love it so much. And that's, that's easy to a certain extent. The hard work is actually how we live that out in our relationships with one another, how we live that out towards those who are oppressed and poor, to those who are marginalized in ways that God breaks your heart. So would you lead us in ways, God, that are, are real? Would you allow our church to be unified around the desire to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you, to love God and love neighbor, to be salt and light? And may we stumble through how we work that out in our city and in our world. Make us one as you are one, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your atoning blood that brings us into relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to be a a kingdom people living future now, living what it's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth now. That gets to break into time and space now through the work of the church. May we not neglect that vocation. In Jesus' name, amen.